The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. If you're able, turn in uh, your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read the first seven verses. This is our text for tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, that's on page 976 in your Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 in the first seven verses. This is God's blessed word. Let's give our joyous attention to it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, even reading your word, we are amazed and humbled and increase that amazement and that humility in us now through the ministry of your word. Spirit, take these words and seal them to our hearts that we, your people, might rejoice in your great goodness to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul has described a most remarkable picture of Trinitarian salvation. Building on that, he has told them uh, for what he is praying for them, and he has told them to whom he is praying. Uh, And those texts were remarkable in their richness and in their depth. But now, Paul is going to take the Ephesians, and by implication take us, on a kind of historical tour of their lives. Uh, More than that, he's not just going to speak about the Ephesians, he's going to include the Jews. He will include himself and the people of his nation in his diagnosis of the human condition. And he's going to teach us that all mankind, regardless of ethnicity, is born dead in sin. And were it not for the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, we would all be lost. It matters not whether we're Jew or Gentile, we would all be lost. The passage before us then reminds us really, all of us here, of what we were and what we have become according to the mercy and grace of God. What we were, but what we have become in Christ our Savior. And that is a cause for great rejoicing 
on our parts. Great rejoicing and should fuel our desires to live an upright and obedient life. I want to deal with these verses really in three ways. Very briefly dipping a toe back into the last verse of chapter 1 and verse 23, 22 and 23, uh, under the heading of what the Ephesians are, and by implication what we are. What the Ephesians are, chapter 1, verse 23. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, what the Ephesians were. And then in verses 4 to 7, what the Ephesians have become what they are, what they were, what they have become. We're kind of going full circle. So we start off with what the Ephesians are, because Paul has told us something important about them before he begins this long diagnosis of their old state and the state of all men without God. He says there in chapter 1, verse 23, he talks of the church, the last word of verse 22, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's told them they are the church. The Ephesians are the church, which is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul has led up to that remarkable statement uh, in the whole chapter of chapter 1, telling them what they are now in Christ. Verse 4 of that chapter, they're chosen by God. Verse 5, they're adopted. Verse 6, they're blessed in the beloved. Verse 7, they've been redeemed by Christ. Verse 11, they have an inheritance. Verse 14, they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, chapter 1, verse 23, he tells them they are the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a staggering a staggering statement of who the Ephesians and who the Christian is. We see immediately that the Christian is raised up to the greatest heights in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, heights which are beyond our natural comprehension. He's telling us we're sons and daughters of the living God. We're joint heirs with Christ, to use the language of other parts of Scripture. That's a staggering statement about any of us. It's a staggering statement about the Ephesians. All the more staggering when we consider chapter 2, verse 1, our second point, what the Ephesians were or who they were. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, The passage is often misunderstood. I can't see why it should be misunderstood. Uh, Of whom is the passage speaking? The pronouns are very clear throughout this entire chapter. You, verse 1, you were dead. You Ephesians, you were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then Paul says in verse 3, he changes the pronoun. He says, among whom we all once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and so on. We, we were by nature children of wrath. He is saying Jew and Gentile alike hold a common spiritual heritage. 
It's not one rule for the Gentiles and one rule for the Jews. That's where the debate comes in in this text. No, he's saying all men share a common spiritual heritage, and that's a heritage of spiritual death. Paul is saying what's true of you, Ephesians, is also true of us, among whom we all once lived. We Jews lived in the same manner as you Gentiles did. He says we lived in passions of the flesh. We were children of wrath. That's to say, brethren, in the state of unregeneracy before the Spirit has done a work in a person, whether Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. They are spiritually alike. No difference between Jew and Gentile of Ephesus in the first century. No difference between any of us today in the 21st century. That makes what Paul is saying in terms of spiritual state very relevant to us here tonight. What is Paul saying about the Ephesians? What is he saying about what they were? Well, he gives a damning verdict, does he not, on the nature of man without God. He's talking here about the plight of man without God, the plight of Jews, the plight of Gentiles. In a moment, he's going to provide a remedy for that plight. But what a plight it is. Paul says that men and women without God are dead men walking. Dead men walking. Literally, that's what he says. You were dead in the sins in which you once walked. Dead men, dead women, yet walking in sins. He says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking about a spiritual death, of course, because they're practicing sin with their bodies. He says you're spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. He doesn't tell them they were on life support. He doesn't tell them there's a conflict within them. They're they're fighting for good and fighting for life. No, he says, you're dead. You were dead. Matthew Henry describes it this way. There is a privation of spiritual life. They're in a dead state, destitute of the principles and powers of spiritual life. Calvin says this, they were not in danger of death. There was a real and present death under which they labored. They were separated from life itself, God. They were opposed from the principle and practice of life. They were opposed to the giver of life. They were diametrically opposed to the one who has and gives life. And that spiritual death is a spiritual inclination toward evil, which is why then they continue to walk in sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Don't worry about the rain, because I'll see these eyes going right above my head. Don't worry about the rain. This is more important. He's talking about original sin original sin, a spiritually dead nature which cannot desire or do any good, cannot desire or do any good, which then, to use the language of our catechism, produces all 
actual transgressions. Their state, their nature was evil. It was dead. And they continued walking in that deadness in which you once walked. They continue to be practitioners of sin. He's saying the Ephesians in their natural self practiced sin, walked in sin, were at ease in sin. They were practitioners of lawlessness. And he describes that state more fully in the second verse. Yes, in which you once walked, he says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That idea of following there is according to. They behaved according to another principle, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the course of this world. Charles Hodge in his commentary writes that this speaks not only of the character of their life, but the governing principle which controlled their conduct. Not only their character, but a governing principle They were fully bought into the world. They followed, they lived according to the course of this world. They lived according to the prince of the power of the air. They were alienated from God and happy to be so. Happy to be in the world, standing against God. Moreover, not just did they follow the course of this world, they followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan. They followed Satan. They lived according to Satan's powers. Here he's called the prince of the power of the air. It's not a spatial idea, really. It's a spiritual idea. Elsewhere, Paul will speak in Ephesians of these evil demonic powers in the heavenly places. What Paul is saying here is that there's a spiritual dimension to these realities. Satan is a spiritual being. He's an angel. And he's saying that Satan and his demonic forces are spiritually attacking these people, spiritually dominating the natural man, standing against God, standing against man, turning man further against God. Great spiritual darkness in Satan, the prince of the power of this air. I think we can say this, a more hate-filled, self-disposed heart we will find in none other than Satan. Hates God and hates men. And he musters all his forces of demonic power to afflict God's people and to afflict everyone in this world with delusion. Paul is saying this. Before the Ephesians knew Christ, they lived in accordance with satanic principles and powers. But he also says the same about the Jews. He says precisely the same thing. A great leveling statement there in verse 3. Though the Jews were objects of historical blessing, covenants, promises, land, temple, and so on, By nature, they were just as the Gentiles were. The Jews lived after the same fashion. Verse 3, here's this long description of the Ephesians in their state of deadness, following the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air. And then he says this, verse 3, among whom, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, 
we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says they lived according to the passions of the flesh. That's a telling statement because it's the Apostle Paul who is saying it. How could the Apostle Paul be one who lived according to the passions of the flesh? How could he be a child of wrath? How could he be one of the sons of disobedience? How could he live according to the passions of the flesh? Paul's not saying that when he was a practicing Jew, he lived a debauched lifestyle. That's not what Paul's saying. No, he says he lived according to the passions of his flesh. How? By having confidence in his flesh. Remember, he was described, or he described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, he was what? Blameless. And he says he was living according to the passions of the flesh. Confidence in his own flesh, confidence in his own works, confidence in his self-righteousness. Friends, he's saying it really makes no difference if you're a religious zealot without Christ than whether you're an adulterer without Christ. Both are living according to the passions of the flesh. Both are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A couple of matters of application to us, friends. Paul is saying this as a preface to a long section about the mercy of God. And this is a solemn reminder to us tonight of who we are by nature. Who we were, Lord willing. Who we once were. Not anymore, but who we once were. And if we could say anything about this text, we would say, please don't forget who you once were. You might have been the religious zealot, or you, or you might have been the debauched person. Paul's saying it matters not. If you were without Christ at any time, this is the diagnosis of you, dead in your sins and practicing sins. Never forget who you were before you were delivered. And I understand some of us don't have that Paul on the road to Damascus experience. Great if you don't. But you know the reality of who you were. The Bible tells us so. Here it is. This is who we were. Never forget it. Because knowing who we were ought to banish all pride and self-satisfaction from us now. It's true that the habitually proud Christian has either forgotten what they once were or does not presently know the grace of God in their lives. It's that serious. Never forget who you were. The second thing, and Paul says this of himself, really, implicit at least, never forget that being religious counts for nothing. Being religious just counts for nothing. 
Religion without Christ makes you no better than the debauched people of this world. Paul tells you here. Verse 3 is very clear. You're no better than the people of this world. No better than the evildoers, the sons of disobedience. It's a call for any of us. It's a call for any of us and all of us to flee the empty facade that we might have put up before the rest of us and to truly know Christ and to truly embrace Christ, to have him as your own Lord and Savior. And you can do that. You can do that because verse 4 tells us that that's what God has done for his children, the Christian. What a great antidote verse 4 following is to the natural estate of all of us. We read these words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Friends, there is a change in the texture. It is radical. It is real. It is lasting because it's a divine change. It's what God has done for us, not what we have done for ourselves. We get an insight here Uh, Through the lens, which is the heart of God, we get an insight into our own salvation, the heart of our Father in heaven delivering us from sin, the character of our Father in heaven, the actions of our triune God. Notice the flow of the text. It's a bit complicated. Verse 4 through to verse 7. Let me skim through it. Uh, But God... And then we've got some qualifiers, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, three qualifiers. But then he goes on to tell us three things that God has done for us. But God, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, And verse 7 is a kind of product or purpose statement, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace toward us in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. He raised us up with Christ to sit in the heavenly places so that eternally he might show how gracious and kind he is towards you, dear Christian. That's what's going on in the text. All these wonderful and marvelous things, descriptors, qualifiers, great statements of what God has done, great purpose statements, but it all starts with these words, the foundation, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It all starts there. It's all rooted there. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. We know what mercy and love are, don't we? But we could turn to the dictionary and, and define them very well. But one writer says with these words, mercy and love, quote, the tragic account of man's forlorn condition is finished. The tragic account of verses 1 to 3, what you were by nature because of mercy and love is finished, over, done with, gone. The love and mercy of God working in blessed tandem to reverse all the terrors of verses 1 
chapter 3, to reverse the terrible plight of the sinner. Notice here, friends, there's a cause and effect. It's not the mercy of God which procures his love. Don't make that mistake. It's a theological error. It's not what it says. Listen, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Love is the cause of mercy. Love precedes mercy. His desire towards sinners precedes, produces in him mercy towards us. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we can think of mercy in a kind of cold or, or judicial or forensic way. Mercy is, is God not treating us according to our sins. Okay, that's good. But here Paul says that mercy comes to us because of love and a great love with which he loved us. Here we see the love of God, the heart of God, the compassion of God, the desire of God in heaven towards you, dear sinner. Though we were children of wrath, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verses 5 again, the love of God produces in him the action of mercy so that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Why? Because he loves us with an everlasting love, a great love with which he has loved us, a love so great, so magnificent beyond our comprehension, he sent his own son to die that we should be delivered from our sins. It's a remarkable statement. A profoundly costly love that he would provide the lamb that would take away our sins. Love producing mercy for us, not the other way around. Jesus didn't buy the Father's love at the cross. The Father's love sent Jesus to the cross. So what has God done for us in love and in mercy? The first thing he's done is there in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, just another little reminder to us, we were all dead in trespasses when these things happened, spiritually dead. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead, we were made alive with Christ. We've covered the idea of being dead in sin, spiritual death, spiritual inability. But here we have the idea of being made alive together with Christ. It's another one of those union words, with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Here it's with. It's the doctrine of union with Christ once again. Made alive. That's to say the pall of spiritual death has been removed from us. Our hearts have been enlivened. God, as he promised, took out the heart of stone in the Christian and gave us a heart of flesh, wrote his law upon that heart, gave us that new heart that we could receive the gift of faith too, 8 through 10, so that we willingly, we desire, we receive Christ, but we want him as well. We were made alive spiritually when we were dead. Together, with Christ. 
not just made alive, but together with Christ. There's a reference here to his resurrection. He was made alive in his resurrection. Paul speaks of this significantly in Romans chapter 6. When Christ died, we were raised with him. To, when he was raised, sorry, we were raised with him to newness of life, a new seed of spiritual life through the resurrection of Christ. Paul will say this in Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's raised us with him. He has given us life in him. He made us alive. On on the back of what Paul says there, he'll continue in Romans chapter 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 7, for one who has died to sin, listen, has been set free from sin. Alive, set free from sin. On the back of that, Paul will say to them, is one of the most staggering statements in the New Testament, Romans 6.11, the first command in the book of Romans, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin. Not dead in sin, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say in the very next verse, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You struggling with sin, friends? Consider yourself dead to it. You've been made alive. You don't dwell under the pall of spiritual death any longer. It's a great truth. Christ's resurrection, friends, is daily applicable in your life. It's daily applicable because when he was raised from the dead, you were united with him and the strength of sin and death was broken in your life. Isn't that staggering? There are some people this very moment, many, many people this very moment, under the power of sin and death. But you, dear Christian, are not. You've been raised to newness of life. You've been freed from the domineering power of sin. You don't need to obey the principle of sin anymore. Christ has set you free. He's made you alive. Now live as if you're alive. But he's done more than that. God, verse 6, has raised us up with him and seated us with him, that's with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Talking about glorification here. Again, the language of union with him, in him. God is not just content with liberating us from the power of sin. If I could put it this way, he's put a seat somewhere next to Jesus in heaven right now with your name written on it. Now, we rightly don't have assigned seats in church. 
but there is an assigned seat in heaven for you, dear Christian, with your name written on it. Notice the tenses. Raised us up, seated us, past tense. Done. God has done it, Paul says. The Holy Spirit says, God has done it. God has raised us up. God has seated us. How can that be, you say? We're not there. We're not in heaven. We don't have our seats next to the Lord Jesus Christ. We still feel pretty inglorious, don't we, in this life? Our bodies getting frailer by the month and by the year. Sin still ensnaring us. Discouraged by circumstances and lack of faith, how can we already be raised? How can we be seated in heaven already? Yet Paul says he has done that. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Pastor Ocken mentions this frequently. It's called the already and not yet. Already and not yet, that God has already secured for us, as it were, a seat in heaven. He has assured us. He has raised us. He has glorified us already. He has given us that place in heaven already, even though we do not fully yet, not yet enjoy it in its most complete sense. God tells us it's already been done. And the fact we're not there yet does not in any way undermine the reality of what God has done. Because he's done it, not us. We're not going to be arranging the chairs in heaven. He's already done it. This is remarkable. How scripture and Paul constantly portrays even glorification as a past event that has already happened for the Christian. It's staggering. This is not wishful thinking. This has been done. Why? Because Christ is in heaven. Christian, are you united to Christ? You are. So that as he sits in heaven even now, in a real sense united to him, so do you. It's remarkable that we should be in heaven and yet still on earth. Or we'll go to heaven more fully than we ever know it now, but it's already a done deal. It's been done. That means, friends, you can live in the midst of death, in glory, suffering, trial, with glorious hope now. Because you know these things have, in a sense, already been done for you. And because we have that sure and certain hope, as the Apostle John says, he who has this hope does what? Purifies himself. Because we are seated next to Christ, because we're sat there, we can now obey. We should now obey. We should seek to put sin to death. We should seek to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Don't go home tonight and sin. Don't get up tomorrow morning and sin. Put it to death. Fight it. Live unto God. It also means we can live without things like resentment or, or a desire and need for revenge because we know we're already sat in heaven. We're already there. And God will take care of all the injustices, not us. We can live with hope 
in an otherwise hopeless world. And the final thing that he's done for us there in verse 7, it's kind of a product. He's doing these first two things so that he might show us or do another thing for us. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We read in chapter 1, verse 19, of the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now we're reading of the immeasurable riches. It's kind of just building up the words, isn't it? Normally it's the riches of his grace. And we think, wow, riches, treasures. But here we've got immeasurable riches, immeasurable treasures, treasures without number, a scale of grace and kindness that we cannot even begin to comprehend. God is going to reveal that to us fully in heaven. When we get there, we'll understand what we don't now. If any of you feel hard done by by God, just pause for a minute. You might well have had a very, very, very hard life, genuinely so. We know it happens. Objectively, a hard and terrible life. But God is going to bring you unto himself so that he might show to you, to you, to you, the immeasurable the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. There's no unkindness in the Lord. There's no gracelessness in the Lord. There's only goodness. There's only blessedness. And even the terrible things that afflict us in, in this life, we will be able to look back on them and say, yes, that was the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us. Friends, we can begin to contemplate this now, can't we? Is it not the Christian's testimony, at least when we're thinking right and by faith, is it not our testimony that God has been good to us? You can nod your head if you want. Is it not the case? He's been oh so good to us, staggeringly good to us, to just deliver us from our sins. He's done more than that. He's made us alive. He's raised us up with Christ, and he's going to show to us the fullness of, of the blessedness of his hand upon our lives. From before the day we were born, we'll be able to look back, I believe, in heaven, on the new earth, in fact, and see the goodness of God all the way back to eternity past. We'll understand the decree of election like we've never understood. We'll understand all the hardships and trials and challenging providences of this life like we've never been able to understand it. We can think on those things now. God's grace and kindness should be glorious to us. How much more glorious then is it going to be in heaven when we see unhindered by sin? 
no hindrance of sin, no limitations of this life. We will see and we will know and we will experience what God will show us, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, towards the Christian, towards the child of God. And above all, we'll see ourselves as sinners saved by grace. There will be a day of separation. And part of the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us is that we will not be on the wrong side of Christ on that great and final day. There will be a separation. Those who reject God and his Son in this life will be separated and condemned. If there be any here now who know not the Savior, we plead with you, know him today. Come to him, bow before him, receive and rest upon him as Lord and Savior now. And you too will know the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who believe. That's why the old hymn speaks of us being lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lost. There'll be so much grace and kindness on display to us. We won't know where to turn. Everywhere we look, every reflection back upon this life, will be infused, will be drenched in the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Friends, you need to know this now. You need to study this great kindness now. This is a call to discipleship, is it not? Why is Paul writing these things? So we might know them. Why is he writing that we might know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards us who believe so that we might know that? Know it. Study it. Heads of households, take responsibility for what goes on in your home. Teach the word. Teach the word faithfully in your own home. Live the word faithfully in your own home. Every one of us, young men, young women, out on your own now, disciple yourself. Know the Lord, love the Lord, be filled with his grace and kindness. Dig deep. Friends, this is the stuff that fortifies you for the trials of life. Beyond measure, this fortifies you. It'll give you the strength to go home tonight and sanctify God in your hearts. It'll give you the strength and motivation to get up tomorrow morning and sanctify God in your hearts. The goodness and kindness of God will help you purify yourself in holiness. It'll help you pursue obedience to the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit until that time when he comes and takes us under himself and makes us perfect like he is. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we plead with you that these words would not be snatched from our hearts. That you, Lord God, would reveal that kindness to us. Even this night, may we go home, Lord, filled with joy. Joy and gladness. And for any, Lord, who bear the burdens of this life,
As we all do in some way, but some are particularly burdened. Lord, refresh their hearts. Refresh their hearts this very night, we plead with you. But above all, Lord God, give us faith to live well for you, that we might honor you and praise you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.